Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, open your Bible to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, I'm going to read verses 29 to 34. We will pray and then we will jump in to our meditation this morning. So Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Uh, 29 to 34, I'm sorry. Wait for Brother Ken. Page number? 560. Okay, page 560 in the Pew Bible. Hear then the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 29. In those days it will never again be said, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Rather, each will die for his own wrongdoing. Anyone who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. Look, the days are coming. This is Yahweh's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant they broke, even though I had married them. Yahweh's declaration. Instead, verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, know Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is Yahweh, the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. What sweet words. Let's pray. Father, your word gives life. It gives life to us individually. It gives life to us as a church. It guides our life. Your words are breathed out by your spirit. And they are authoritative and inerrant. We pray now that as we meditate on your words from various texts, that you would continue to write your word on our heart, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly that we would be compelled with joy and gladness and gratitude to keep obeying you and repenting from sin and drawing near and trusting in Christ and living together as a church family. So we pray that you would guide us. We know we are united to Christ who is seated at your right hand. And we know that because we're united to him, you will answer our prayers for your glory and for our good. And so we trust you now. Bless this time here with hearing, with conversion, with growth, and even our children's classes as your word is taught there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does church mean to you? I looked this up online, and they said, what does church mean to you in three words? And so here are some answers, and some go longer than three words, okay? Sacred house of worship. Gathering of the faithful. A hiding place and refuge. The hope of the world. Good times always. <laughs> now, uh, here's, those are some maybe Christians. Here's some non-Christian answers. Sanctimonious, intolerant, bigotry. That is how I feel about organized religion. And God, though, he or she is a cool dude, in my opinion. A place where some people get together once a week to read a book and listen to sermons. They think they can't live without it, and they are wrong. Another one, irritating, pointless indoctrination. Another one, stress, rules, 
confusion, and they put in a fourth word there, and obligation. And here's one long one that was from a different website or different thread. Most churches are just social clubs, so I guess they're not really churches. This is a Christian who's frustrated with churches. As God says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. The world looks at people in the church who can't even love their own. Doesn't it say they will know us for our love for one another? Too many teachers in churches can't even do that. The church is filled with pious, hypocritical bigots who are quick to knife you in the back. Boy, I can go on. Why is the world as bad as this? Because we're too busy hiding in holy huddles and not getting into marketplaces in our neighborhood, cities, etc. Feel the frustration, right? That's one person's view of what the local church is. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of the local church. Today we want to talk about congregationalism. I'm going to define it in a second, but before we do, just thinking about Jeremiah 31. I read it to you. You're right there, right? Jeremiah 31, 29 to 34. We're going to jump off from here. What is the, the, what is the church? The church is a covenant community. We are a community that is covenanted to God and covenanted to each other. That's what the church is. Now, notice in verse 32, it's not, or verse 31, it says, I will make with them a what kind of covenant? A new covenant. So it's not the old covenant, the one made with the house of Israel in verse 33, through Moses with the Ten Commandments, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, particularly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is a new covenant, a new structure for my covenant people, and a new nature of who the covenant people are. And so, what's the difference here? Look at verses 29. Look at verse 29. In those days it will never again be said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and whose teeth are set on edge? Children. So in the old covenant structure, you had what we would call a tribal representative structure. If the father fails, guess who feels it? The whole family. If the judge fails, the whole region feels it. If the king fails of the nation of Israel, the whole nation is judged. They are represented by a tribal representative. And as the fathers go, they eat the sour grapes, and whose teeth are set on edge? The children's. But there's coming a day. That's old covenant. In the new covenant, no one's going to say that anymore. Look at verse 30. Rather, each will die for what? His own what? His own wrongdoing or sins. Anyone who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. This is different. The new covenant means that there is personal, not that there wasn't personal responsibility, but there is no longer a tribal representative structure. As D.A. Carson writes, Jeremiah is not concerned to say that there will be no teachers under the new covenant. What am I doing here, after all? But to remove the leaders from that distinctive mediatorial role that made the knowledge of God among the people at large a secondary knowledge, a mediated knowledge. So there were mediators in the old covenant. Priests, prophets, kings. You wanted to know God, you went through them. But in the new covenant, you go directly to who? To God, right? And in the New Covenant, it says that the teaching will be written where? In verse 34. On their what? On their hearts. This is different than the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is a mediated covenant, but it's mediated through who? Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. But it's not mediated through special endowed leaders. It's not mediated through pastors. Every member of the covenant has a direct, immediate access to God in Christ, writes Stephen Wellam in the book Baptist Foundations. Here's the point. Every member of every church, every Christian has direct access to God through Christ 
and they don't need pastors or teachers or priests or prophets to mediate them to know God directly and savingly. Amen? Praise God for what Christ has done in the new covenant. That's what makes the church different than the old covenant. Okay, so what does that have to do with our sermon today on congregationalism and the local church? Now turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. And if someone has the page number of the Pew Bible, just shout it out and I will say it from the microphone, okay? Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. 694, page 694 in the Pew Bible. Look at verse 13 with me. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Okay, here's the issue. The question is, who is Jesus, right? That's the question. Who is Jesus? Who is the Son of Man? Answer, go to verse 16. Here's the right answer. There's some wrong answers there. But then the right answer is in verse 16, because some were saying Jesus is a prophet or Elijah or John the Baptist. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Simon, son of Jonah, you are what? Blessed. You're not cursed, you're blessed, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. What did God reveal to to, to Peter? That Jesus is the what? The Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter's confession was revealed by who? God. So it's God's truth, right? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, revealed by God himself, right? Now look at verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? My church, and the gates or the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, or whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. So Peter, or Jesus, is concerned with the right confession. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you say he's a prophet, but not the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you say he's Elijah or John the Baptist, you're wrong. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the right confession from the Father. So you need a right confession. But you also need a right confessor. What did Jesus say to Peter? Simon, son of Jonah, you are what? You are what? Blessed. Blessed. You are not cursed. You are blessed. You are a true gospel confessor. And you have a true gospel confession. That's what Jesus is after here. Who is a true gospel confessor? And what is the right gospel confession? And now this Jesus-approved confessor, Peter with this Jesus-approved confession, is given what in verse 19? The keys of the kingdom. To do what? What do the keys of the kingdom do? Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. What do keys do? They lock and unlock. Doors, right. It implies access, but also authority. You get a new car, and you get the keys. You have the authority to drive the car. You buy a new house or you rent a new house and you pay your rent and you you sign the papers, you have the authority to enter that room lawfully, right? Or enter that house lawfully. Keys imply access and authority. And who's the keys given to here? Peter. And these are not just any keys, not keys to a car. These are keys to the what? The kingdom of God. Man, no greater keys than these keys. Okay, you could bind and loose, lock and unlock with these keys. And Peter has the keys. 
to bind and loose. Now go to Matthew 18. Turn to the right. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. So the two or three are now judging the the situation. They're the ones saying who's right and who's wrong in the situation. If he pays no attention to them, tell it to the church, verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church that's judging whether it's right or wrong, let him be to you like an unbeliever and tax collector. Okay, so who's the final judge here? The final court? The church. Now listen to what he says in verse 18. This is staggering. I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Sound familiar? Who gets to bind and loose? Those who have the what? Keys. In Matthew 16, Peter had the keys. He was the right gospel confessor with the right gospel confession. Now who has the keys here? The church is the right gospel confessors who have the right gospel confession. And they exercise the keys of who's in and who's out in terms of declaring. Now, they can't change what's going on in heaven, but whatever they loose has already been loosed in heaven. Whatever they bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. They are the earthly declaration group that declares who's in and who's out of the kingdom. They're the official public group that declares it. Now, you could profess faith, but the church is the one that publicly binds and loose. And no, no individual does that, but the church does that. So the church is the final authority. Now it's the local church here that has the keys of the kingdom. Here's what Jonathan Lehman writes, a pastor at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. He writes, what is the authority of the keys? It is the authority to pronounce heaven's judgment on the what and the who of the gospel. Confessions and confessors. More concretely, it is the authority to write and affirm statements of faith and to add or remove names from the church membership directory. That's the keys of the kingdom. Doctrine, statements of faith, who's in as a member, who's not in. That's the church's exercise of the keys. Now, it's, 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 it's important to note that no individual today has the authority of the keys. Peter and the apostles did not hand it over to bishops, to other bishops, to other bishops, as if the bishop of Rome, the Roman Catholic Pope, has the keys. They teach that. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's clear from Matthew 18. It's handed to the church and not apostolic succession of a pope or a bishop of Rome. The keys are not given to the bishop of Constantinople or Canterbury. The keys are not given to a general assembly of elders over a group of churches in Presbyterianism. The keys are not given to a group of pastor elders in the local church, what's commonly known as elder rule. The keys are not given to the senior or solo pastor in a local church, as if he's the pope of the local church. The keys are not given to the pastors and deacons or trustees or the church council or to a committee. The keys are given to the local church as a local church, the whole church made up of Christians who have mutually committed to one another and to the church. New covenant Christians with the forgiveness of God through the gospel, the law written on their hearts. They don't need a teacher or a mediator to go to God. They know God. And they as a church family exercise the keys of the kingdom as a whole. Now this assumes three things. That scriptures are clear. Because as Christians, if we all are exercising the keys together, the 63 active members of our church right now, 
and any of the 900 plus who become active again. As we exercise the keys, we need three things. We need a clarity of scripture. Is the Bible clear? Can we understand the Bible? Yes or no? Yes. We don't need people to understand. We can read it for ourselves, right? Assumption number two, who do we have living in us? The Holy Spirit. Spirit. Very important. If it's just a group of anyone making the decisions, we're in trouble. But if these are Holy Spirit indwelt individuals who have the clear scriptures and they're reading them and trying to follow them as a church, you can make good decisions. One more thing, uh, one more assumption. Having qualified pastor elders who are faithfully teaching and equipping the church to exercise the keys. You need that to have a faithful, congregational, healthy church. So Jonathan Lehman continues. Isn't this stunning? Jesus did not go to the wise, powerful, or noble ones to represent his authority on planet Earth. He did not ask the kings, philosophers, or poets, the Ivy League College, or the College of Cardinals to represent his rules, his rule. Instead, he went to the foolish, weak, insignificant, and despised. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28. He went to the ordinary Christian folk and church members and gave them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He said, you speak for me. You make a royal and priestly judgment for the Father in heaven. You tell the nations, that is a right confession. And he or she is a true confessor. Wow. It is a big deal to be a member of a local church. It is a big deal to be a local church. You exercise the very keys of the kingdom of God on earth. So how do we exercise the keys as a local church of 63 active members? How do we individually participate in exercising these keys? Here's the point. You have the keys as a church, and you have a share in exercising the keys as a church member. This is not your option. This is your job. This is your responsibility. If you came to Christ, you follow Christ, right? And when you follow Christ, you're given certain responsibilities. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. So you love Jesus, you trust Jesus, then you're responsible for this job description. Question, as a church member, are you doing a good job? Well, PJ, I don't even know my job. Tell me what my job is and I'll tell you if I'm doing a good job. Okay, I'll tell you. Let me give you five five job responsibilities here in your notes. Okay, both sides. Five job responsibilities for a church member to exercise the keys or to take part in exercising the keys together. And they're under three categories you see there. Teaching, membership, and disciple making. Okay? Category number one, teaching. Let's go to job responsibility number one. Now, I apologize ahead of time. The verses are here for you to read. But for the sake of time, I want to finish this message in the next 22 minutes or so. So I need to read verses. Faith comes by hearing. So listen, if you can turn fast enough, great. But the verses are all here for you to follow along. And I might wait for some of them. So go to Galatians 1. And you can even turn ahead of time if you want, looking at the verses right there. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Let's go. 823. Thanks, brother. Page 823 in the Pew Bible. If you're a visitor here and you don't own a Bible, you don't know where it is. We encourage you to memorize the books of the Bible as Christians, but Galatians 1, verse 6. What is the job responsibility of a church member? Job responsibility number one. Look at verse 6. Here's Paul writing to the churches of Galatia, not to the leaders, to the churches. I am amazed that you, churches, are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, 
But there are some who are troubling you and want to change the good news about the Messiah, the gospel of the Messiah. Verse 8. Now, verse 8 and 9 is where you focus. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, what? Let him be accursed. A curse beyond him. In case you didn't understand what Paul says, he repeats himself in verse 9. As anyone preaches to you, or as, I, as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. A curse be on him. A curse be on him if he's preaching a different what? A different gospel. In other words, Christians need to preserve the what? The gospel, right? So that's number one. Number one, job responsibility number one, help preserve the gospel. Help preserve the gospel. What is the gospel? Galatians 3, verses 9 through 14, stated explicitly, what is the gospel? Verse 9 says, we are blessed, we who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is what? If you don't do everything written in the book of the law, you're what? Cursed. So if you sin, guess what? You're cursed. You're damned. We're damned. We're going to hell. If you sin. Here's the problem. Every one of us here are what? Sinners. And we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means we are all cursed. We're all cursed in our sin. PJ, I thought you said it was good news. It is good news. Get to verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's the sweet news. He has redeemed us, bought us out from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. That even though we deserve hell for our sins, Jesus Christ came into the world, lived a perfect life that we should have lived, and died on the cross, becoming a curse because he hung on a tree. He never sinned before, but God treated him as if he had committed every single sin of every single sinner who would ever believe of all time, of all nations and ethnic people groups. And he hangs there condemned for sins as a curse. So that we who are cursed can be freed and redeemed from our curse, though we deserve the curse. How can we be redeemed? Well, Jesus did that. So what do we do? Verse 14. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham, that's the opposite of the curse, is the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through what? Through faith. And if you read verses 11 and 12, it's not by your works. If you go to Galatians 2 verses 15 and 16, you're justified, you're declared right, you're accepted before God with full righteousness and no guilt of sin because of Christ through faith and not by the works of the Law. Now, God gave us the law. We are to obey God. But if you're not a Christian here today, please understand this. You are not a Christian by obeying God's words. That is not how you become a Christian. You cannot do enough to be accepted before God. We are sinners and cursed. Christ obeyed God perfectly for us. And we get his perfect righteousness. And he took our death on the cross and he rose from the dead. So that if you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus you will be saved. The gospel is not religion and the gospel is not irreligion. It's not do whatever you want. God will accept you anyways. It's not do everything God tells you and then you'll earn your way to heaven. It's not either of those. It's 
You'll never be good enough, but Christ was. So repent from your righteousness and your sin and trust in Jesus alone. Amen. Turn from your sins. Trust in him alone and you will be saved. You'll be accepted before God. That's the gospel. And if anyone comes up behind here and preaches a different gospel than what I just preached here, what Galatians 3 just said, let him be what? Cursed. So what does that mean for us as Christians? If we're going to preserve the gospel, that means we need to know the gospel. We need to rejoice in the gospel. We need to hear the gospel regularly. What does this mean for us as a church? This means that if an angel, imagine a big glorious angel comes right here, shining white, wings spreading halfway across the stage on both sides, just bright, glorious, the most beautiful creature you've ever seen, standing right here and preaches a different gospel. What should you do? You take a bunch of the men, you grab him by the wings or by the ears, and you throw him out of here. Right? Well, maybe I shouldn't be advocating violence. But, as a church, we should formally and officially declare that we reject this gospel as a false, satanic, cursed gospel. The church needs to declare that. And we would need to declare the teacher who persists in this false gospel as a false teacher... And he's not welcome to teach our church family. Right? He wouldn't be welcome to teach our church family. That is what you need to do. Okay? So you preserve the gospel. And this is in Acts 17. You don't have to turn there. But do you remember the Bereans? When Paul went to preach there and teach there, it says in Acts 17.11, the people were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If you're a member of this church, you are responsible to examine the scriptures as the word is taught from anyone up here. I could be a pastor here for 40 years or 20 years. You still have to check from the scriptures every time. That's your job as a Christian. That's your job as a church member to preserve the gospel in this local church. Isn't it the pastor's job to teach and preach the gospel? Yes, but they're supposed to teach so that you know it and you can hold them accountable. And anyone who comes behind this pulpit, accountable. So if we're supposed to affirm gospel-centered teaching or gospel teaching, then that also means we need to affirm gospel teachers, right? That's job description number two, or job responsibility number two. So number one, help preserve the gospel as a church member. Number two, help affirm gospel leaders. Help affirm gospel pastor elders, okay? Help affirm gospel leaders. That's job responsibility number two. You know, in Acts chapter 6, it says, when they're appointing deacons, it says the... Acts chapter 6 verse 2 says this, The twelve summoned the whole company of disciples and said to them, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. Therefore, brothers, select among you, you church. Who's the one doing the selecting? The church. You appoint seven men of good reputation. And then verse 5 says, The the proposal pleased the whole company. Who's affirming the gospel leaders in Acts 6? The church is. With the apostles' guidance, in 1 Timothy 3.7, we talked about this last week with the qualifications of a pastor elder. In, one, in 1 Timothy 3.7, it says this, Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders. How do you know a pastor elder has a good reputation among outsiders? You ask the church, right? The church needs to be the one to know that. They need to ask the outsiders. And then 1 Timothy 3.10, with the deacons, this also applies to elders, pastor elders, they must be tested first, it says in 1 Timothy 3.10. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Who tests them? The church, right? 
The church needs to know them. If we appoint someone and you bring them up here and you don't even know who he is, if I as a pastor said, hey, here's our new pastor, Pastor Bill, everyone I want you to say hi, or Pastor Fred, and I, I point him up here and you don't even know him, you'll be like, whoa, hold on. He's not our pastor. We don't even know. Has he been tested? Who affirms gospel leaders? The church does. That's your job. I'm not going to belabor this. We talked about it last Sunday. Ultimately, it's in our business meetings where we affirm and remove leaders and where we affirm and reject what is claimed to be biblical teaching. So if you're a member of this church, you need to attend the members' meetings. It's very important. That's part of your job. Number two. Or I'm sorry, that was number two. Responsibility number three. Job responsibility number three under the category of membership. Help affirm gospel citizens. Help <coughs> excuse me. Help affirm gospel citizens. We already met, read Matthew 18, right? But do you remember Matthew 18, 17? If he pays no attention to them, tell it to the church. If he does not pay attention to the church, let him be to you like a what? A tax collector or an unbeliever, right? A pagan. So who's supposed to be the one excommunicating them? The church. The church. You're saying you're no longer part of the membership. You're no longer part of the community and the communion if you refuse to repent. It's a long process, it's a patient process, but it's a firm process. So the church is responsible to excommunion, to excommunity, to excommunicate an unbeliever or a, a professing believer. They say they're a Christian, but they are unrepentant. 1 Corinthians 5 verses 4 and 5 say the same thing. I preached on this two weeks ago. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, with my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one, hand that one over to who? To Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We spent a whole sermon two weeks ago on it. We don't need to camp on it here, but suffice it to say, the church is responsible. You church members, your job, you are responsible to affirm and to remove your affirmation from those in the church, according to God's word. You affirm people, and you remove affirmation. That's what excommunication is. It's not saying they're not saved. It's saying we don't know that they're saved, so we are removing our affirmation that they are saved. That's excommunication. But not, now turn your paper over if you're following the notes. What about incommunication? How else do we affirm gospel citizens? Incommunication. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2. And I want you to turn here. This one's an important verse. They're all important, but 2 Corinthians 2. Thank you, brother. 8.17. Page 817. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2 verses 5 through 8 say this. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. Now remember, they had excommunicated someone. I'm not sure if this is the same person as 1 Corinthians 5. I think it is, but we're not sure. The text doesn't say clearly. Look at verse 6 though. The punishment inflicted by the who? What does it say in your text? The, the punishment inflicted by the? Majority. majority. The punishment inflicted by the majority of the church is sufficient for that person. So who decided to excommunicate? The what? The majority. So there must be some sort of church counting to know if it's a majority or a minority, right? So there's congregationalism. Verse 7, though. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him, otherwise this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. So what is Paul urging him in verse 8? I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. 
What does Paul want them to do? He's repentant. He's grieving. So what do you do? Forgive him and take him back. Restore him. He was excommunicated. Now he must be incommunicated. Taken back in. And who does that? Who's Paul urging? The leaders? The majority? Or yeah, he's, he's exhorting the church. It's the members of the church who are responsible to incommunicate. As they were responsible to excommunicate. Even think about Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What's the next word? Baptizing. Baptizing. What is baptizing? The public profession of faith. And when you get baptized, you also generally join a what? Church. That's why we vote before they get baptized to take them in as a member of the church. Because that's incommunication. When we take in a member who transfers in by a statement or by transfer, by letter, we are incommunicating them. So you're excommunicating, you're incommunicating as a church, and you're recommunicating. Recommunication. What's recommunication? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is communion now, the Lord's Supper. We're taking the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm going to do a whole sermon next week on the Lord's Supper and baptism. So we're not going to belabor the point now. I just want to pull out one point here about recommunication, renewed communication, regular, repeated communication. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 says this. I want you to follow the argument here. It says... The cup of blessing that we give thanks for is not a share or sorry, the cup of blessing that we give thanks for, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? So as they take the bread, what does that represent? The body of Christ. Everyone agree with that? Yes. Now seventeen gives us a twist now. It gives a nuance into this bread. Because there is one bread, we who are the many are what? One what? One body for all of us sharing that one bread. So who's the body in verse 17? The church. As you eat the one bread, who's the body in verse 17? The church. Who's the body in verse 16? Christ. Because the church is called the body of Christ. But notice, Paul is conflating these two. Not to say that we died, you know, and that it's, we're celebrating our death for our sins. But the point is, we are the body of Christ. So now you get to 1 Corinthians 11. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, here's the whole thing about the Lord's Supper in verses 17 and following. But look at verse 29. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the what? Verse 29. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the what? See that in verse 29? Recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks what? Judgment on himself. So what is communion? Remember, they're eating, and they're, in verses 17 through 19, they're eating before the rest of the members get there. They're getting drunk with the wine. People don't even have food when they get there. They're not, they're not recognizing the body, because what is the body of Christ? In 10, 16, it's Christ. In verse 17, it's who? The church. And when you take communion, you don't recognize the body, the church, the local church, or churches. You're actually not recognizing the body as you take communion. It's, it's about, it's not just, it is recognizing our worship to God, but it's, we are the one body, the local church, representing the universal body of Christ. And so we need to recognize that as we take communion. Look at verse 33. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, what should you do? What should you do? Wait for one another. Why? Should you take it by yourself? No, it's not a private act. Communion is public. 
Communion represents the community of faith, the communion of faith. And so when we as a church have membership, we do membership by excommunicating those who are no longer part of the communion. We incommunicate those who profess faith in Christ and they become a member in the body. And we show our membership regularly through what? Communion. That's the repeated expression, the visible expression of the communion. And so, if you want to affirm gospel citizens, that's job responsibility number three. Your job as a member is to affirm gospel citizens. Incommunication is recognizing their gospel citizenship and, and entering through baptism or restoration from excommunication or transfer. Recommunication is communion regularly repeated in the church to renew and reaffirm those who are in Christ as a community, not individually. And number three, excommunication is an act of the church as a whole to remove someone from the communion. Whose job is it to do all three of these? The church. It's not my job. I'm not going to incommunicate or excommunicate or recommunicate by myself. That's not my job. It's all of our job as a church. Being a member is a serious deal. You exercise the what? The keys of the what? Kingdom. In affirming the who of the gospel. With membership and baptism and restoration and excommunication and communion. So, go to the business meetings. If you're a church member, take communion together. If you're not a Christian, you might say, Man, I know a lot of hypocrisy in the church. That's why I can't be a Christian. There's just so many hypocrites in the church. I opened with that, right? With that one person who shared hypocrisy. That's why the church needs to practice incommunication, recommunication, and excommunication. Because you know who else hates hypocrisy? God does. And God has taught the churches to confront hypocrisy. And we all have sin in our lives. We all need to be confronted. But when we get confronted with sin, what should we do? Confess and repent, right? And if we refuse to repent, that's what hypocrisy is. The refusal to repent then the church must step up the actions so that non-Christians, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, I want to apologize for two things. Number one, forgive us for sinning against God and against you. Because every time we sin, it's against the Lord and against you. And we shouldn't be hypocritical. And we, don't have, we shouldn't make excuses for it. We need to just own it. We need God's forgiveness. We need your forgiveness. I would plead with you, if, if, we, if I or anyone here has been hypocritical towards you, let us know that we might repent. But secondly, I would also say that we also need to ask forgiveness for you, from you, or at least say sorry to you for not making sure our membership is tight, is actual accurate with the incommunication and recommunication and excommunication. That's our fault as a church. We have the keys and we need to uphold it. That's what congregationalism does. And we confess in our churches, not just, you know, in, in all of our Lasba churches and other churches, that we have dropped the ball. On this. And so therefore you don't know who's affirmed by the church and who's not. Church member, what do you need to do? Understand what a Christian is. Our church covenant will outline those expectations. Know what a fake Christian looks like. Third, as a Christian, as a member here, confront and correct others with humility and firmness. Fourth, receive correction from others. When they correct you, they don't hate you. If someone corrects me, they don't hate me. They love me. They want to help me. And then we as a church need to know who the true confessors are in our membership role. That's part of faithful church life. 
and then attend business meetings where we take in and we, we see out members. If you're a Christian, you're not a member of a church, I would just encourage you to join a local church so that you can exercise the keys of the kingdom too. Realize it's not sufficient to just claim you're a Christian on your own. This week, you know who knocked on my door? Jehovah's Witnesses. And you know what they claim to be? Christians. They claim to be Christians. They claim to be in Christ. And so my question to them, if they were here at the communion table, and if I knew, I would say, are you a member of a church that preaches the same gospel you hear, you hear preached here? And are they? No. no. So we do not affirm your profession of faith. Please refrain from taking communion. All right? That's what we do as a church. If you're a Christian, join a church that preaches the same gospel you heard preached here. It doesn't have to be this church, but join a church that preaches the gospel because they affirm you and you will affirm others. Okay, so there it is. We have job responsibility number three, help affirm. Help affirm, and we'll talk about that more next week. Fourth category, or third category, job responsibility number four. Gospelized members, gospelized church members and non-Christians, or gospelized Christians and non-Christians. Let's just go to one passage here, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 12, says this. Listen to Ephesians 4, 12. It's the saints who, uh, the pastors equip the saints or train the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. Who builds up the body of Christ? The saints. Who does the ministry, the work of the ministry? The saints. What else do they do in verse 13? As the church builds up the body of Christ, as they do the work of the ministry together, gospel ministry, we will all reach in the unity and faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing into mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness with the techniques of deceit. We won't be tricked by a false gospel if we're mature and we're building each other up with the gospel. Verse 15, what should we do to build each other up as saints? Verse 15, speak the what? The truth in what? Love. Do both. Some people have so much love that they don't ever speak the truth because they're too, quote-unquote, loving. That's not love. That's a false love. That's sentimentality. You're really preserving yourself, not them. But no, don't just, don't just speak the truth. You can speak the truth harshly, can't you? Don't be harsh. Don't be impatient. Don't be rude. Don't be pushy. Speak the truth in love. Be gentle and firm. Both. Gentle and firm. And when you do that, you're gospelizing each other. You preach the truth to each other. You preach Christ. Anytime, I confront, anytime we confront each other in sin, let's remind each other of the gospel. Your sin is not the end of the world. Right? Your sin is just normal Christians trying to live Christian life. So I have good news for you as I confront your sin. Christ died for our sin. He rose from the dead. I'm gospelizing you. And you're gospelizing me when you confront me in sin. And that's what the church does. We build each, up, each other up in the truth. The truth is the Bible. And who's the main point of the Bible? Christ. Christ. I am the way, the truth. truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we don't just preach the Bible to each other. We preach Christ to each other as fellow Christians because we build up the body. Well, if that's what the body does, what is the pastor supposed to do? I thought the pastor builds the church. No. What does the pastor do in this passage? Verse 11 says he gave pastors and teachers to do what in verse 12? For the what? Equipping or what? Training of the who? Saints Saints for the work of the ministry. What's the pastor's job? My job is to train you so that all of us as members do what? Build up the body. Right? Build up the church. Right. 
I train you to gospelize each other, speak the truth in love, so that we could do it together. I train you, I equip you, so that you could speak the truth in love to non-Christians, so that they could um, be saved, repent from their sins, trust in Christ, get baptized, incommunicate into the church, and the body is built up more, right? Who builds up the body? We do. Not the pastor elders. We build up the body through gospelizing Christians and non-Christians. And when we do that and encourage each other, the body is built up. So, we explain Jesus, we embody Jesus, and we enjoy Jesus. And we call others to enjoy Christ with us. Right? That's gospelizing. That's number four. Let's go to number five now. Last one. Job responsibility number five. Turn to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Notice this is all exercising the keys of the kingdom. The first three categories in community... Um, Membership and doctrine, that's the formal exercise of the keys. This is the everyday exercise of congregationalism. We, we build each other up with the gospel and job responsibility number five, Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir each other up to what? Love and good works, encouraging or not staying away from our what? Assembling or our meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We must not neglect our gatherings. We gather as a church on Sunday morning as our main gathering. We gather Sunday night. We gather Wednesday morning and Wednesday night. The point here is not that you come to church. <coughs> I said the point, the job response was not to gather, but gather to do what? Gather to encourage each other. You know, sitting here is assumed. Getting here is assumed. Now, of course, if you have health issues, that's not you're not sinning in that regard. Uh, but gathering here is assumed. But you don't need, you don't just need to be here. What do you need to do to each other? Encourage each other. Are people glad you came this morning? Think about it. Does someone love Jesus more because they talked to you this morning? Do they love Jesus more? Do they love Christ more? Do they love the Bible more? Are they more broken over over their sin and more hopeful in Christ because they hung out with you? Have you encouraged their soul? Gather to encourage and stir up to love and good works. So how does this fit with being with, with leadership? It says in Hebrews 13, I'll close with this. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey and submit to your leaders. But I just said the leaders don't have the keys of the kingdom. Who does? The church does. So how does that work with obey and submit to your leaders? The leaders are to teach the congregation the word so that the congregation can exercise the keys. It's like a parent and a 16-year-old child who has their driver's permit, right? And what does the parent do? They brace themselves, right? Maybe you're wearing a helmet while you're in the car, right? Just to be extra safe. You're there with your 15-and-a-half-year-old or 16-year-old, and, you're, and they ha- who has the keys? They do, right? Who's behind the steering wheel? They are. And you're coaching, and you're pleading, and you're holding on, and, you know, and you're trying to teach them how to drive, but they are exercising the keys. It's the same thing. Pastor elders are responsible to teach and preach and shepherd and love and equip the flock. And then the church is to exercise the keys of the kingdom. And so, uh, Mark Dever writes, The congregation recognizes and submits to the elders. On matters that are important and clear, the elders or pastor elders should normally agree with the church. When they do not, the authority of the congregation is final, not the authority of the pastor elders. On matters that are less clear, the congregation should trust the pastor elders and go along with them, trusting God's providential work through them. Churches always benefit from clearly delineating and agreeing upon everyone's responsibilities and obligations. 
What should a member's attitude be towards church leaders in a congregational church? Mark Dever writes, A church member's basic attitude needs to be either trust the leaders or replace them. Okay? Trust the leaders or replace them. But don't, but don't say that you acknowledge them and then not follow them. If you disagree with the elders, pastor elders on a recommendation, have a good reason. Go and talk with them about it. Other than the Bible, you are the, main, the pastor elder's main source of information about you. So that should be our attitude. Generally trust, not suspicion. Don't say you support the leaders and not support them. What does a healthy church look like versus an unhealthy church? Let me give you a few combinations. You could have selfish members and stubborn leaders. When you have that together, what kind of church is that? Good church? No, right? Really bad. Many churches languish with this evil combination, and we can only hope that those churches die faster. Right? They're a bad witness to the gospel. We don't want bad witnesses to the gospel. Now, some churches have wonderful church members, but wrong leaders who are either careless and stupid, at best, or, at worst, they're wolves abusing and using the church. Many of us have been or known churches like that. That's not a healthy combination either. Disqualified leaders with good members? Not a good combination. What about, there are some churches that have wonderful qualified leaders, godly leaders with a church full of complacent, self-centered people. If such a pastor could stay and patiently teach the word, this is Mark Dever writing, the congregation can be renewed. If not, there will be a heavy judgment on the final day for wounding faithful under-shepherds of God's flock. And lastly, what is a healthy church? It's a church filled with imperfect members and leaders, but they're marked by godly initiative and service, godly teaching and obedience, godly leadership and godly membership. May we, the 63 active members of this church, exercise the keys of the kingdom faithfully. May we preserve the gospel. May we affirm gospel leaders. May we affirm gospel citizens. May we gospelize Christians and non-Christians. And may we gather to encourage each other regularly. That is your job. By God's grace. We need God's grace, right? Let's pray and ask Him for grace. Father, we acknowledge that we need your grace We need your grace, or else we can't do what you call us to do. And so, Father, this is a a daunting task, yet we know that in the end Christ said, I will build my church. It's not ultimately up to us, so we don't want to, we want to lean on you and come to you. You will give us rest, and yet at the same time we want to be faithful to preserve the gospel, to affirm gospel Christians, to affirm gospel leaders, to gospelize Christians and non-Christians, and to gather and encourage each other regularly. Help us to exercise the keys. It is an amazing wonder that you gave our church keys to the kingdom. Help us to exercise them well and not take them for granted. Grow our church in health, in joy, in love, so that everyone who comes here encounters Jesus in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.